This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Moshe Schwartz. Uh, Moshe is the president of Etherton and & Associates and one uh, of thought leaders in government procurement and the business of government in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, Moshe, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the show, back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, that was, well, this is going to be a, a fun or oh, and actually worrying discussion, I think, a little bit today, because today I, 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 we're going to talk about uh, an article on some analysis that Moshe and Michelle Johnson um, who is a communications manager at the Acquisition Research Program at the no- Naval Post Graduate School, uh, put together some analysis and an article uh, entitled The Slow Destruction of the Defense Industrial Base. And um, that's very ominous, um, Moshe. It doesn't make me sleep well, uh, you know, soundly at night. Um, so Can I think you, you cue the music right now? Yeah, that. right, right. It could be... Could be like from Jaws or something. They're coming to get us, right? I don't know. And and we need a we need a bigger boat, right? Um, so, uh, but um, can you can you talk about you know what sort of what prompted you to do you and Michelle to do the article and just what and sort of what the problem statement is and and we can walk through some of your analysis and causes, effects, challenges, opportunities, kind of thing. So go ahead. Absolutely. And what it started is I was reading a GAO report on a small business, which discussed how the number of small businesses receiving DOD contract awards decreased by 43% from 2011 to 2020. It dropped from over 42,000 to uh, just over 24,000 companies. Um, And that happened at the same time that obligations to small businesses from DOD increased by about 15%. But then there was this almost throwaway line in the report, which said, well, by the way, the number of larger businesses receiving contract awards fell by 7.3% per year on average. Um, And the report didn't talk about large businesses, but it even mentioned that within context. And that seemed stunning. So uh, Shell um, Johnson did a little bit of research on, well, how does that compare to the general U.S. economy, right? Because there could be a lot right. of reasons for this. Maybe there are just fewer companies out there. Well, there aren't fewer companies out there. Over the same time period from 2011 to 2020, a U.S. GDP, right, gross domestic product, grew by 34% from $15.5 trillion to almost $21 trillion. And over a similar period from 2010 to 2019, the total number of businesses in the U.S. grew to by 7%. So as the economy is growing, and as 7% more businesses exist in the U.S., they're just simply choosing not to work with DOD for a variety of reasons. And it's small businesses, it's large businesses across the board. And that just seemed something worth discussing because the tagline there is even increased defense spending 
can persuade companies to work with DOD. Right. And, and I think what captured for me, what captures, you know, the importance of this is just, you know, the terminology, the phraseology used to describe the industrial base. It isn't just the defense industrial base. You sort of coined a term, the the national security innovation and industrial base. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. So the national security innovation and industrial base. And so why did you choose that phrase? That's what you use through the article to describe, you know, the people we'd like to see do be doing business with the DOD, right? So for a few reasons, when I was at the uh, 809 panel on acquisition reform, we're trying to figure out what's the term, right? Because the term defense industrial base sounds very industrial age. And is that capturing innovation and all those other things? So some people have used the defense innovation base, but that ignores the fundamental importance of the industrial base, right? Just because cyber and technology is an increasingly important element and it is a critical element. I do not want to understand, sell that at all. So are turning out planes, turning out tanks, frankly, turning out toilet paper and pens and food, right? It is all very, very important. Um, And it's not just defense. It's also national security. And the term defense used to be a more broadly conceived of concept, right? The Defense Production Act is not just the Department of Defense. This includes elements of the State Department. It definitely includes the intelligence community. So we're trying to think, how can we coin a term that would include not just the Department of Defense, but all the other national security elements, and also didn't give short shrift to the importance of fundamental industrial power, which is the power of the United States in manufacturing. So we've, we thought national security, innovation, and industrial base seemed to do it. Right. So, yeah. And, and when you talk about that innovation and in industrial base, um, well, number one, innovation is driven these days, right, by the private sector. You know, maybe back in the 60s and 70s, the Defense Department or the government drove a lot of innovation. But, you know, fundamentally, innovation is coming faster and faster and is being led by, by the private sector. And I know you mentioned the article, these 14 technologies, you know, and there's only two or three that are exclusively sort of defense focused and just where things are in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. There has been much discussion on how DOD needs the commercial markets more and more, and there's more R and D being spent in, in industry. That's true. But I think one thing that also drove this home to us as we're putting this together is you know, Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, Heidi Hsu, she's put out her 14 technologies, critical technologies. And even by DOD's admission, at least 11 of those are being led by the commercial markets. Right. right. So the detachment of the commercial industry from the Department of Defense is more than just not getting more competition. It's actually not getting the leading edge in the technologies that DOD itself deems critical for its capabilities in the future. And if 11 out of 14 are being driven by commercial, I think DOD needs to do anything that it can to make sure that those commercial companies are working with it, because if they don't work with DOD, they will work with others and including somehow not directly, but somehow competitors 
of our national security getting that technology. Yeah. And that does not make sense to me. Yeah, and you know, we have about a minute and a half left in this segment. And when we come back, we start talking about some of the specifics in terms of barriers to entry and the symptoms that have created this and your thoughts as well on where to go next. But one of the things that struck me in your in your article is in a couple of different places, you quote, you know, reports and statements from the 1990s. So, you know, in the Clinton administration and particularly the one that really struck me is dual use technology, defense strategy for affordable leading edge technology in the Clinton administration issued in 1995. And so it's so the two things struck me. This isn't a new like people have recognized this for a long time. Maybe they've, you know, between you know, 9-11 and the war on terror and Afghanistan and other things, people have like lost focus on this perhaps. Well, because we're operational. And the other thing is, you know, the term, I hadn't heard the term dual use technology used um, until m- more recently with regard to, you know, the, the Chinese um, and their developing technology and, you know, some of the barriers uh, or restrictions placed on technologies going uh, being used by the Chinese government through corporations there and that sort of thing, and their focus on dual use, it seems to me. Is that, I mean, is, am I making any sense there? I, I think totally, and I'll just make two quick points. The first one is, right, this is not a new issue in the 90s. We were talking about this, and I think as time has gone on, we have become excellent at articulating the problem. <laughs> but I have not been very good at actually solving the problem. So we could come up with a great analysis on why it's a problem, but we have not made much progress in how to solve it. And the second, with the dual-use technology, I, I think it, it's just in a broad sense. I was There's this podcast, and I was just discussing this yesterday, where one of the ways drones were created where the Israelis needed some visibility in what's going on in Sinai. So they took toy model planes and stuck a camera on it. Yeah. Right. Well, in the most simple sense, there's a dual use technology. Those model right. airplanes that we played with as kids that controlled, that's a dual use. So it's not necessarily this fancy thing that sometimes people think of like microwave technology. Right. Right. So, okay. And Moshe, we're up on the break. But when we come back, uh, we'll start talking about, um, you know, some of the you know barriers to entry and things that you identify in your article that make it much more difficult uh, or less attractive, fundamentally less attractive for private sector uh, corporations to, you know, work with the Department of Defense and, pro- and the federal government more generally. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's the president of Etherton Associates and, uh, you know, a thought leader in government procurement and defense, sort of overall the big picture kind of thing. Right, Moshe? I think that's fair. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's I get, I'm complimenting. I know. I know. I'm just trying to. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, you know. And today we're talking about uh, Moshe and Michelle Johnson's uh, article and analysis: the slow de- destruction of the de- defense industrial base. And we're really looking at it as the national security innovation and industrial base. 
and what 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 uh, where things are with regard to the federal government and the fact that there's less and less companies willing to do business with the federal government and there those barriers entries and i noticed in the article there's a there's a section where you at a high level before you, we dive into the details you talk uh, the article talks about um five key sort of areas or symptoms let's say or features of the system or areas of the system that um you know that that companies find concerning and doing business with the federal government. Can you run through those and then we can start and talk a little bit about them and then dive into some of the, um, the details. Absolutely. And, and as I dive into them, I think one of the trends that we have seen of late in DOD that flows through many, if not all of these that we're going to dive into is a policy of, I would articulate as being perhaps Pennywise and pound foolish or um, short term, arguably smart, but long term. I don't want to use the word disastrous. Let's just say less than ideal, right, for, for the DOD, a long term thinking. And some of the issues are that we talked about intellectual property, um, cash flow, bureaucracy, um, overall policies that inhibit good decision making. And then a failure of follow-on opportunities. And we can talk about all of those. But if you see in all of those, you see that same thread. So, for example, intellectual property, right? There is a lot of churn within the department on how to handle intellectual property, right? Um, it was raised by Andrew Hunter at the Naval Postgraduate School Symposium, saying this is an area where the Air Force needs more research. Um, it's something that there are going to be, and there are already a number of uh, DFARS, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement rules coming out. They've already come out with one on uh, non-commercial software and some other things. But IP at its heart is the crown jewels or the critical element for companies, right? This is right. their bloodline. Right. And yet DOD seems to be articulating very often that, well, we just need it. And there's the lack of understanding of, but there's a cost to that. Right. right. And companies right. are just not going to hand it over. And to go further, right, if you are a company where 60, 70, 80, 90% of your business is in the commercial market, at some point it's, well, I appreciate DOD that you want this, but I'm just not turning it over because there's a bigger picture from the company perspective. Right. You, you know? remind me when you met that last comment, just sort of reminds me of, you know, uh, the, the, the dialogue we used, you know, I think it was in, in the more in the Obama administration at the time about strategic sourcing and doing these things and in to because tr- the government's the biggest buyer. Well, it may be objectively the biggest buyer, but if you go through it for a commercial company, you know, a, a traditionally, you know, especially high tech companies, you know, the federal government may be one or 2% of their revenue stream. And who's going to like fundamentally change their intellectual property, you know, um, you know, allocation of rights or what they're going to do, for, provide to the customer based on one or two percent of revenue. You know, it just doesn't it doesn't from a you know pure market sense. It doesn't make any sense. Right. At the end of the day, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And I think one thing that that sometimes some people in DOD don't get is. If. You say, well, I need this IP for 
um, sustainability for all these other things. Okay, I get that. But if the rules and regulations of acquisition are such that people aren't even competing for it, for DOD contracts, then you're not even getting the IP in the first place. So what's the point? Right. So now you're right. arguing about inferior, sometimes pay more. That's a lesson that I think um, my wife and I learned um, with our young kids when we first started, they first started going to school. We would buy them those backpacks for like 30 bucks and we'll say, oh, good, that's a much better deal. But then two years later, we're buying them again. And two years later, we're buying them again. Meanwhile, I still use the backpack I got in business school, which was way longer than I want everybody on this call to know. Um, yeah, that was I a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it was like twenty years ago, and I still have that because I spent more upfront, but it has saved me substantially more money in the long term. Right, right. You know? It's like it's like my L.O. Bean boots. They're forty years old. They still work. Right. At the end you of the day, you don't look that old, Roger. There's no, no way. I'm much older than that. So, but uh, I wish I was forty, um, or even fifty, for that matter. Um, you know, along those lines, you know, it, back in the day, I did some this data, you know, this dance around data rights and intellectual and all that, and just trying to find the right balance. And you're right, like for sustainability, or then I think it was, oh, we got, we need these data rights to be able to have future competitions, right? Beyond just the, you know, the, you know, the, the company that, that developed it, you know, on the government's time or partially on the government's time, right? I, you know, I guess my question would be, what does the private sector do in this regard? And why, you know, and if the private sector is the, you know, is the epicenter of innovation, aren't there data, you know, rights practices that the federal government should be taking a look at and how the private sector does it that to, you know, because it doesn't seem to, you know, eliminate competition or innovation or that sort of thing. Is that? Yeah, have you thought about that at all? Or? Absolutely. So, first of all, there are some things that private industry does more that um, DoD isn't at least as of yet doing, like special negotiated licenses, right? Mm-hmm. More licensing. So that's an area that might be one for more um, examination. Two is I think the the going in um, philosophy is we understand IP rights and companies are just not going to turn it over. Right. So there's a slightly different negotiation where I think DOD sometimes think, well, you should because we're government and we, we need, deserve it because right, right. we need it and we're the government. Right. We're defending and, the country or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I've, I've, I remember hearing a CEO say, ultimately, most companies are patriotic. Right. But they're not going to sacrifice their company on the shoals of patriotism. Right. Right. So I think while DOD can get better prices very often, they're not the company's not going to mortgage its future because of it. Right. And that in itself changes things. The third thing I want to mention is the economic model that is often used in DOD procurement, right? So it is often said with with some accuracy that companies will sell the platforms at a we'll use the term discount, knowing that they will make it up in the um, ONS later on. They'll make it up right. in, the, in the servicing of it. If you want to have lower prices in the out years, then you have to change the economic model to allow it to be more profitable for the, for the sale of the platform in the early years. 
but you can't take an economic model that says we want to pay very little on the platform and then have your IP so we can give it to other people to sell it out. Well, then there's no business profit for companies. So if you want to deal with that IP in the long term for maintenance, then make it worthwhile for just the platform. It's kind of like cars. When I buy a car, there is an understanding that, well, I might take it to Jiffy Loop to get my oil changed. So they have to make up a certain margin when they sell it. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point about how, you know, the government and it, what you're really saying is the government needs to be more strategic about how it's, you know, acquiring its web, you know, its platforms, its, you know, weapon systems and, and anything else from that matter. So it's a more efficient, I guess, win-win, right, for both yeah. the government and for industry because if you have a win-win you know you have a better national defense and you have have a maintain and you maintain the industrial base right at the end of the day the health of the companies yeah and participating in the market you would benefit from thinking more in terms of win-win and shared benefit as opposed to not and another example would be like profit versus cost policy Right. So there's this idea and there are a number of proposals in this year's NDIA on cost data and the importance of cost. So DOD is not getting overcharged. Right. So let's say there are two companies that are selling the same item and DOD's attitude is we want your cost data because like the DOD IG report said, anything over 15 percent of cost, that's cost that's gouging, right? That's that's right, profit charge. over fifteen percent. Right? Yeah, yeah. So if you have a company that makes a product for twenty dollars, and you have another company that makes the exact same product for ten dollars, the argument is: well, the one that pays twenty dollars, that costs twenty dollars, it is perfectly reasonable for us to pay twenty three dollars because that's fifteen percent. But the one that charges ten dollars for the exact same item. If they charge us $18, well, no, that that is terrible. That is disgraceful. That is gouging. Right. Well, how about looking at it as we can get the same thing for cheaper? Don't focus on cost of the production or right. of the contractor. Focus on the cost and value to the department because the way they're constructed now is if your rules have fewer people competing and their cost is higher, you're going to be paying more. But you right. don't mind because at least you're seeing their data. What, in fact, is the priority of the department? Is it the quality? Is it the capability? Is it the speed? Or is it the compliance of good paperwork and making sure we're within a cost parameter? Right. And so, and it's, but you could say, though, too, is that company that sells it at, you know, $10, like, you know, it's okay to sell it to, to DOD at, for eleven fifty, like 15%, right? But they may even say, like, that's not that's not an attractive business deal for me. I'm not going to do it because I make a lot more money on the same thing because I've got a better, you know, manufacturing process than this other company who who sell you know sells it for you know or the costs are twenty bucks, right? So these guys say, why would I do that? Why do I want to sell it? You know, when I it's it, it you know just dealing with the government costs more, let alone you know you know, trying to you know, limit my profit to 15% when I've built a better mousetrap in terms of how I make the thing, right? Does that make yeah. sense? Well, and if you want a good case study of how of regulation run amok, right, is so the Truth in Negotiations Act, which is talking about cost and certified cost and pricing, right? It was first enacted in 1962 as a result of GAO work um, in the Korean War. 
when it was first uh, put into law, it was 363 words. 363 words, right? In 2019, it was over 3,100 words. And I think there are about three proposals this year from various people to start monkeying with it again. And it has been amended at least 15 times that I've been able, I think maybe 14, 14 or 15 times since 1962. So a rule of thumb, anything, any legislative language and regulatory language that has, um, I don't even, it's not tripled, it's not quadrupled. It's it's more than 10 Tenfold, times, yeah, tenfold. Tenfold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The legislation is tenfold more complicated Think of the the burden of applying to that. And now we still want to monkey with it more at some point. Say, you know, let's right. just leave it be and move on with life. Right. Right. Well, Mausha, we're up on the break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our discussions. And an interesting uh, uh, aspect of your article you focused on is on workforce. And I found that part really, really fascinating. And I want to hear get your thoughts and insights in that regard. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's a president of Etherton and Associates. And today we're talking about Moshe and Michelle Johnson's article on uh, on the slow destruction of the defense industrial base or the the National Security Innovation and Industrial Base, as uh, I think is a great way to describe it and this terminology used in the article. And we last segment, we talked a lot about intellectual property as a barrier to entry and, you know, increasing costs and, and I think hampering innovation as well. Um, and uh, another area where innovation, you know, there's a barrier, it's hampered is just in the workforce and it's, you know the in, the defense the current defense innovation and industrial base that's a term I'll use um you know that uh that works and supports the federal government you know they, they have a lot of you know i guess um handcuffs around them in a certain sense in terms of attracting talent and that sort of thing so and obviously that would that will inevitably impact innovation um you know what does your article say about that and where what are your thoughts on that Moshe? Sure. Right. So we talked about we had two theses in the paper. The first one is we discussed is that the industrial base, industrial innovation base is shrinking because companies don't want to work with uh, national security agencies. The second one, as you pointed out, which we agree wholeheartedly with, is that the acquisition rules and regulations are hamstringing those companies that are in the NSIB or the National Security Innovation and Industrial Base. And it is preventing them from being innovative and being as fast and being as efficient as their commercial counterparts. And that hurts ultimately the Department of Defense and others who are buying. And that is a major concern. So not only is the industrial and innovation base shrinking, but those that remain are being forced to try to do their work, as it were, with one hand behind their back. Yeah, I used handcuffs. Maybe that's well. It is handcuffs in a certain. Yeah. It's not, and they're not golden handcuffs, right? Because uh, <laughs> you know, one of the big issues is how much you can pay folks. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. So, for example, if you're looking at contracts that are CAS, cost accounting compliant, right? So there are caps on what you can pay people. 
um, including in this in the STEM area. And there are some theoretical exceptions that can be done in law with certain approvals, but they're not done because it's so hard to get exceptions and it's so hard to make those arguments. Um, so they're capped. And a lot of defense companies are losing what I would call their top tier talent, the T3, top tier talent, to private sector because they can't match their pay. It's not that they can't exactly match it. They can't even come close. So I remember reading an article about two months ago about how Apple was giving unannounced bonuses. In other words, not something that had been previously agreed to or in contracts of $200,000 to some of their top engineers. Now compare that to the cast caps, right? The bonuses that they weren't even expecting by contract of $200,000 to keep their top engineers happy. And so if you're a defense contractor and then your employees are looking at that, what do you think they're thinking, right? right. Because they're capped at, at, at the cash cost. But it's not just that. It's more than that. We are in an environment now with an incredibly tight labor market. Right. And then the administration flows down this requirement, which they're not enforcing because of court rules about vaccines, right? right. And you have the caps on salaries, and you have a potential shutdown of the government, right? And then you have continuing resolutions. So the contracts you thought you were going to get, you may get or may not get, and you don't know when that's going to happen. When you start adding all of things, these things up, particularly with the great resignation era now, it's a challenge to keep that talent. Now, if you take the approach that, well, people are just interchangeable, then fine. Who needs it? That's fine. But if you take the approach that talent actually matters, particularly with innovation and technology, then you have to rethink that. I remember talking to a CEO um, of a company that worked with top 50 private sector firms on cybersecurity, and they were pitching a DOD contract on cyber. And the DOD contractor said, well, how many people, how many butts and seats do you have? How many people am I buying? And they were trying to explain to DOD, that's not how we work. How we work is we have a number of people. And if there's a problem, we surge people. It's not butts in seats. It's surge capability and we move it around. And they said, well, that's not how we contract. They said, fine, we're not going to contract with you. And that is that attitude of of workforce. And and DOD takes the attitude of, well, everyone is interchangeable. So we can cap the cost. We can cap the salary. We can force people to take these uh, vaccine mandates and all these other things that are not applied to the to the private sector. But right. in reality, that drives people away, like this cybersecurity company that was working for top firms and said, well, we just can't work with DOD because they are more concerned with bodies than they are with quality of people. Right. They don't uh, performance. <laughs> they're not they're le- yeah, more concerned about how many people are working on it, whether or not they actually, you know, protect the, you know, the, you know, this, you know, provide the appropriate or necessary or leading edge cyber protection. Do um, the security clearances play in this too, in terms of handicapping those companies that are, are doing business with the federal government in terms of the ability to attract talent and in, in hire people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Both in, in pay scales, right. Uh, as well as in time to get jobs. I and mean, one of the biggest challenges is how long it takes to get, get the security clearances, right? That process. So you have people sitting on the sideline waiting for jobs for contractors who have just left left government. We, we know who they are, right? They right. already have their clearance. And it takes just too long to adjudicate these things. I mean, the whole hiring process 
um, is gummed up with the government hiring process. Right. And there's, I think there is some data, right, too, about, how, you know, the percentage of folks that people lose just while they're waiting to get their security clearance, and especially you would think in this market, right, you know, where there's, yeah, there's such a, you know, uh, there's lots and lots of jobs available and lots and lots of people are trying to hire, you know, still. So um, that's, that's interesting. Now, so yeah, another area, um, and I think we'll have to talk about it when we come back from the segment. In the segment um, that impacts innovation is something that you know people talk about all the time because it's very front and center, and you can see it. And 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 then Congress, to its credit, is taking steps to address it, and that's low price, technically acceptable contracting. And what the, just what that does with regard to innovation and that sort of thing. Maybe talk a little about that and just regulations generally when we come back. And then, you know, wrap it up with some just general big picture thoughts. How about that, Moshe? Sound good? That sounds great. Okay. Uh, I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton Associates. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton and Associates, and we're uh, discussing Moshe and Michelle Johnson's uh, study, um, and I recommend it to anybody. It was presented to the Naval Postgraduate School on the slow destruction of the defense industrial base, also known as the National Security Innovation and Industrial Base, um, phraseology that uh, Michelle and uh, Moshe have coined, and I think is pretty accurate when we then the way we should think about it strategically, both innovation and industrial base. Um, and Moshe, um, I mentioned LPTA um, at the end of the last segment as a, um, I guess a, a break on innovation. Um, your thoughts on that? So some people refer to that as a four-letter word. Um, although it is an initialism, LPTA. Yeah, it, it, it's a problem, right? So clearly there are times to use LPTA, right? So in our own home, right? When we have someone mowing our lawn, we basically use LPTA. Now, just recently there was a slight mishap where all of our time was cut, all of the time that we have growing in the garden by, by the gardener. But you know what? The risk of that is not very big. So as we all know, with LPTA, you use it when cost is the discriminator and the risk is not that big. So we don't have time for a week and a half. You know, that's fine. We can we can figure that out. But what happened when the LPTA was first pushed under the original better buying power when Frank Kendall was was undersecretary? And I don't think he expected this at all, was it was taken to an extreme of, oh, we will always use this. Right. And right. it was being done reflexively without the thought process. And Congress had to come in and say, well, stop using it for technology services, then stop using it for audit services, and stop using it for personal protective, right? Because right. while we at home use it for grass, we don't use it for our choice of heart surgeons, right? Right, right. <laughs> because, that right. Is the, because it's a, so difficult to articulate what that technically acceptable is, and because there are other factors that are involved. And so he quickly retracted that and tried to get people to use it as appropriate. But it seems like many things that kind of stuck. Once it became the uh, issue de jour in acquisition, it went further than originally anticipated and still lingers more than 
um, I think most people would like. But it's, right. it's another example of that pennywise pound foolish approach that DOD seems to be using more than uh, it would be wise. You know, and that's interesting. That's almost, I mean, that's almost to me a reflection of the bureaucratic culture, right? So somebody comes up with an idea and gives guidance, we should do LPT as appropriate, right? And that turns into, oh, LPT is a good thing. So we need to use it all the time because everybody, you know, our oversight's going to look at us. Are you using it? Are you not? And it just develops almost a, you know, a momentum on its own and gets out there. But then when you try to pull it back, it's become so ingrained that it's, I mean, you have to live through it. Like I worked in the government. It just, that's, it's a, it's an amazing place sometimes. So can I quote a Shakespearean quote, which I think is appropriate? Have people quoted Shakespeare before on here? No, you'd be a first, I think. Well, be the first. We're not a highbrow show here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, um, you know, Shakespeare said, you know, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Right? Yes. Very and that good. thinking is the is the operative word there of how do you think about these things? And I'll give a, an example of another area of bid protests, right? Yeah. Where yeah. is it good or bad, but thinking makes it so. There is this idea in DOD that if you get a bid protest, that is bad. Let me right. suggest an alternative way of thinking about it that makes it good. Is if you pull a bid protest, depending on how you did it, maybe you tried something innovative. And it is unsettled as to what the response is. And if you get a bid protest, one of two things will happen. Either you will find out you can't do it, and now you know. That's right. fine. Or you will find out you can do that. And maybe there's opportunity here. So right. the mere triggering of a bid protest in and of itself, assuming it wasn't a true error, is not necessarily bad. But too often, DOD contracts to avoid the bid protest for the purpose of avoiding it, as opposed to saying, let's try to think. And yeah. maybe it'll be a good thing if we get one and we'll know. Right. And I think part to your point there, I think there's, I call it stealth LPTA and that, you know, you'll have procurements that are structured as best value, but gee, funny how it's like they're technically equal and it comes down to a price shootout more often than not. And that's, I think a lot of that is about how do I avoid bit protests? How do I, you know, obviously people can challenge the technical evaluations, but that's still, that's much harder the government gets a lot of discretion. So, but that's, there's, I think there's a lot of that that goes on too, that sort of normalize evaluations, yeah, consciously or unconsciously. And it comes down to a price shootout. Another area I wanted to quickly uh, get your thoughts on is, uh, you know, other transactions authority. Um, it seems like, you know, what we've seen is a trend towards trying to work outside the traditional FAR based system and try different and new and innovative things, sort of like your bid protest idea. Hey, let's try something. So, well, there's statutory authorities. So let's try something, and they're doing it. And, you know, what I, you know, I think you bring it up in your, your article, the, you know, that it's good to use those. Just a couple things are starting to layer more bureaucracy and rules around it. And then there's also the the valley of death from doing an OTA prototype to actually getting something in production they just, you know, there seems to be that gap on how to execute on whether it's funding or, you know, what rules do I follow, that sort of thing. Is that, is that, you know, just talk about OTAs a little bit and what, what, what you're seeing. 
Absolutely. And this um, perhaps is an issue for a show in and of itself, OTS, sure. yeah. because there is a lot going on there. And Operation Warp Speed with the vaccines that DOD General Perna led, that was through an OTA, through a consortia, right? Um, DTS's replacement, the Defense Travel Systems replacement, mm-hmm. was an OTA through a consortia. So there is a lot of opportunity for OTAs to be used, and their use is, in fact, increasing. Now, there are clearly some concerns in quarters, and it's always a balancing act. The first thing to say is it is a tool in the toolbox. It is not always appropriate. Sometimes it is very appropriate, and it is important to to weigh the issues uh, when going down it. And one of the things I'm seeing is DOD is starting to slowly become more comfortable with using OTAs. I would say one area that hopefully will continue to see there being more comfortable is the follow-on production. There are a number of cases where a prototype was awarded using OTA authority. And even though OTA authority has follow-on production under OTA, there have been cases like with the uh, replacement for defense travel system where they ended up choosing not to go that way, uh, I think for levels of comfort and, and, and perception. And hopefully that will, will start, I believe we're going to start seeing a lot more follow-on productions. But one of the problems is no matter how effective and efficient and, effect, and, and successful the prototypes are, if you don't have the funding in place for that scaling up of production, it withers on the vine. Right. And that is one of the flaws that needs to be addressed in OTAs, which is if you're moving and getting this accomplished, and it's not just OTAs, it's like a lot of R&D, how do we make sure that the funding is in there? And there have been a number of efforts to try it, and hopefully the PPBE commission um, that has been established by the last NDAA that Bob Hale is leading will, will look at that. But that is a problem of that transition. And I know there have been a number of, for example, Defense Innovation Unit successful prototypes that have kind of withered because of the lack of transition. And I think one of the most important points there, which goes back to the thesis of this entire show, is companies will bid on prototypes, but they're not bidding on prototypes because they want to win the prototype. They're bidding on prototypes because they want to win the follow-on. Right. And if there's no path for the follow-on because of the lack of funding, you're going to lose these companies in the commercial market bidding because that's not what they're going into assumptions were. Right. Exactly. That's yeah, that's a great point. And we have about a minute left. And I know you wanted to summarize and you know, just I want to get your final thoughts on this. And again, this is uh, you know, the focus of the today's show has been on Moshe and Michelle Johnson's uh, article and presentation to the post-Naval Graduate School, The Slow Destruction of the Defense Industrial Base. Moshe, your final thoughts. Sure. So the way we ended the paper was with an assumption. So a few months ago, DOD put out a report, State of Competition in the Defense Industrial Base. They should have called it the State of Competition in the National Security Innovation and Industrial Base, but we'll leave that for next time. Um, And they said that there's not enough competition. And one of their solutions was they have to do more outreach. So uh, two comments. The first one is if you are the single largest buyer of pretty much everything on the entire continent, outreach is not your problem. 
everybody knows you exist because the whole purpose of companies is to sell and make money. They know you are a buyer. If they are choosing not to sell to you and your your supplier base is shrinking, it's not because you're not doing enough outreach. It's because they are choosing not to sell to you. That's the first point. And the second point I think is an even more fundamental one is perhaps the report should not have been the state of industry's competition to work with DOD. Maybe the report should have been the state of DODs competing with other buyers right. to attract contractors. And I think if that is the mentality that they take, we might see a sea change and DOD might actually improve their ability to get the best technology, improve competition and ultimately lower costs. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like, how can I be a better customer? Right. Right. Yeah. A better buyer at the end of the day. Because the customer, and you hear a lot in the administration talking about the customer experience, the customer experience isn't just the end, you know, the, it is the American people, right? And it is, you know, the agency mission and the, and the agency buying it. But to have a better customer experience, there's a, you know, you have to think about, you know, the, the suppliers as your customer too. And how can I more effectively engage with them so it makes sense for them and good business for them to do business with me, right, at the end of the day yeah. for, as a government. So, Moshe, thanks for so much for being on the show. Uh, again, I want to thank my guest, Moshe Schwartz, the president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.